Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 148th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that insists on making a spectacle out of every spec. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. How you doing tonight, James? Very good, sir. I'm drinking a delicious beer that would probably not make you meet your standards. Now, <laughs> you're you're probably correct, but I'm not a I'm not a snob. I just have a very <laughs> I, I'm I not mean, even okay. I don't want to say refined palate. I have a particular palate. I know what I like and I know what I don't like. Fair enough. What is it? Nothing I like in the alcohol world tends to be appreciated by the average consumer. So I'm very much used to being the guy with the drink in the room that nobody else wants. Mm-hmm. But this is a butter tart beer. Butter tart. Um, we bought some delicious butter tarts at the uh, Christmas uh, market yesterday here in Toronto. And this is the Maple Butter Tart Ale by uh, Midland's Best, apparently. Butter tart. Is that a is that a type of beer? I've never heard of that. It like literally tastes like a butter tart. Oh, okay. Butter tart is a small pastry highly regarded in Canadian cuisine. So, okay. <laughs> So it's a yeah. maple butter tart. I oh, got yeah. so it's sort of for for our listeners who are not in front of a computer. Uh, it's sort of like a maple pecan ale then, pecan yes. pie. Yes. Okay. And it sounds delicious. Tasty. It's very tasty. Uh-huh. But I mean, for people that like that, definitely like their beer to taste like beer, and not like a pecan tart. Uh, it may not be to their liking. No, no it's, it's kind not- of a nutty a nutty brown ale with like hints of maple. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna say that. That would be up my alley, but chances are my complaint would be that it would be an L. I would want that thing in a, as I do all my beers, a barrel-aged stout, which would bring, which would get more sugar into it, and then it would really bring out the maple and the pecan flavor. That I would be all about. Ellie was like chugging back some charcoal stout last night, and she got sick to her stomach afterwards. So yeah, it's unclear on on whether that had anything to do with the delicious beer i tried to purchase for her or the fact that she was eating some kind of nasty pickled thing from the far depths of bulgarian foot mm-hmm. food is a charcoal stout like one of the smoked ones a smoked stout that would be, be, be my thinking i didn't actually try it because i was again having this delicious beer instead i have i have drank <clears throat> i've drank a fair bit of stouts in the last several years but the only one i have ever not finished and poured out with a smoked stout that was vile uh, okay. Tasted like a fire, like so the aftermath of a fire in your mouth. N- n- I mean, that's what they wanted it to taste like. That's not what it was. I don't know. It was n- <laughs> no one in a room of like eleven people would drink it. So I felt vindicated. Unlike like uh, Lafroy Scotch, which is extremely smoky and peaty. Um, you know that I'm not wild about, but I know other people like it, so I know it's just me. But man, that. That smokes. I think it was Evil Twin. Maybe it was a gray can. Whatever. Nobody cares. Mm. Uh, our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, read articles with some of the best financial minds in the hobby, and get access to the all new MTG Price Discord 
full of yep. rousing conversation, including me asking what everyone thinks of magic cards. <laughs> yeah, we do have the Pro Trader Discord going. So if you're a Pro Trader and haven't gotten your invite yet, feel free to hit me up on Twitter to get access to that. Um, Travis, what do we have on the agenda this week? This week we have a segment in four parts. Segment one is our top movers. We'll be looking at the cards that have risen the most in price this week. Segment two, our cards to watch. James and I will run through the cards that we think could rise in price in the future. Segment three, our metagame we can review. Uh, we have a regional PTQ uh, results to look at. Then there's some WMCQ standard lists. And then finally, segment four, our topic of the week. Uh, th- this week, we're joined by Kyle over uh, from his Twitch channel, where he is most well-known for having opened two alpha starters on Twitch, December 4th and December 7th, I believe. Um, that Twitch channel is KRMont222, um, included. And the gentleman. Gentleman Kyle questions, Montgomery. Kyle okay. Montgomery. Nice. Kyle. Uh, so we're going to chat, check in with him later and chat about that. Should it be interesting? But let's get started here. T- segment one or top movers. First card of the week, Thing in the Ice. Um, doing pretty well uh, as a result of the Arclight Phoenix decks. was about $3 uh, last January. Um, so when you write last January, are you thinking? So, oh, so previous January, like 10, 11 months ago. So, yeah. yes, yes. so anybody anybody who stocked up on this the first time we talked about yeah. it is doing okay. very well for themselves. Uh, following that, Temporal Manipulation, 19 to 24 uh, out of UMA, looking at, at a rebound on the UMA cards. And several of our cards this week are marked as rebounding Ultimate Masters. Um, <clears throat> so definitely we're starting to see that right around that time of the pivot. Uh, and, you know, my article this today on MTG Price was all about UMA cards as well. Um, independent of noticing all of this. So definitely uh, now's the time to start seeing stuff bounce, I think, across the board there. And I mean, ultimately versus, you know, there was a range of information that I got when I was performing research on Ultimate Masters in terms of how much of this set was going to be printed. Um, And some people towards the release date were hitting the panic button saying they they were just overprinting the hell out of the set. Now, we don't know for sure what the ultimate print run is because it's entirely possible that what we've seen so far enter the market is just the first wave. And because the set was so popular and has so many good cards and everybody and their dog wanted a, a piece of the action, that the demand has overwhelmed the supply only for now. It's possible that a further wave or two waves throughout 2019 could be pretty tempting to Wizards. They may have already planned that or you know, may uh, you know, go back to the print. Uh, house and see if they can get an extra print run going. Um, we don't know for sure how that's going to play out, but we can tell you for based on the information that we have so far, it does indeed look like demand is outpacing supply. No matter how much of this you think was printed, it was less, uh, pretty close to being uh, too little for demand in the mid to long term. Um, the reason we're seeing these rebounds is because people are scooping cards early out of fear of missing the rebound, which is moving the rebound up on the calendar. Um, so something that I would have predicted would have happened, you know, really good deals would have been available end of this month into early mid-January, which could still indeed happen um, as some of the hype uh, wears off and people start looking forward to the next standard set, which is now getting its uh, hype cycle uh, started as of this morning. Um, and indeed, you might get another opportunity down the road if you see another wave hit, say, in two to three months. Um 
but uh, no time like the present, uh, so far as we can tell. The some of the most interesting box topper opportunities have already come and gone, and are probably not going to uh, uh, ever appear again. If you believed that they printed millions and millions of these boxes, you would have expected to see thousands and thousands of copies of the box topper show up on the internet. And in fact, across all major platforms globally, any given box topper, you're lucky if you can track down a few hundred copies. What that says to me is that these are going to perform very similarly to the masterpieces, even if they were printed at twice the level of the masterpieces. And as such, you should probably be thinking about what it is that you want to add to your collection while the getting is good and keep your eye out for some sweet coupons throughout the rest of the month to see if you can uh, rewind the clock a couple weeks and get pretty closer to their true bottoms. I agree completely. Uh, I I would love to get my hands on really a set of the box toppers, but that would run a pretty penny. So I don't think I really can justify it at this point, but uh, those box toppers are tantalizing. Um, so one of the vendors in Europe did actually run a price by me for that the other day. Um, if you want me to show that to you, uh, com- a complete set. Yep. I mean, I'm sure if you sourced it individually, it'd probably be cheaper, right? Unless they're giving you a discount for taking all of them at once. I'm sure. It, I, I'm sure it's a negotiable figure given how much you're purchasing at the same time. It looks like they were asking twenty one fifty euro, so it sounds like about twenty five hundred yeah. US. Yeah, it's a chunk of change. And and the number that the value that I calculated this afternoon, interestingly enough, is right on hand. So I can tell you how much of a discount that is. Uh, when I calculated the average this afternoon of ninety four dollars per box topper, um, they are all currently worth about thirty seven hundred. So twenty five hundred US is actually a pretty solid. Jeez, discount. You could practically uh, flip that. Pretty close, and into. I made a a point of pointing out on Twitter this afternoon that back in the first week of November, I had predicted that these box toppers were going to be worth about $100 per once we got through peak supply. And lo and behold, we're already at $94 a piece. So everybody who thought that the MSRP on this set was some kind of scandal simply doesn't know how to math. (laughs) All right. What do you got next for us? Uh, Next on this list for this week... Uh, in our top movers, uh, we're looking at Dark Depths, also from Ultimate Masters, moving from 23 to 29 for about a 26% gain. Uh, obviously, also a rebounding UMA card. Um, fantastic art on that, both the box topper and the regular using the same art, of course. Um, and I suspect both will be the preferred version for most people. Drog Skull Captain out of uh, Dark Ascension uh, foils moving from 14 to 20 for a 40% plus gain on the back of Modern Spirits play. Uh, there are some people that think that the Lavinia that was showcased today might be playable in the Spirits deck despite not being a spirit because of its truly sexy interaction with Spell Queller, where it basically means that the spell that Spell Queller um, exiles never ever gets to be cast because Lavinia stops things from being, ca- from being cast for free. Uh, yeah, Lavinia is, uh, is a wild card, uh, even in humans too, right? That card looks pretty nuts, but I suppose that's a little bit off topic. Um, yeah, that card could definitely sneak into spirits. It could sneak into a lot of places in modern and would be exciting to see where that, where that ends up. Um, we'll cover, cover off those new cards from Ravnica Allegiance in yeah, our final. Sounds segment. fair. Uh, okay. I got, I'm so, so more excited about Lavinia than I am drug skull captain. 
Following up uh, from that is Villainous Wealth, foils out of Konzotark here, about 450 or so up to 650, then like about 5,000 EDH decks. I know James and I have talked about this before, um, and I, I think I think you hold a 650. <clears throat> I think that you can still ride this train, um, and this will get up to 10, 11, 12 bucks probably would be my guess. I hope so, because I have a bunch of these that I bought way too early. Uh, fall of maybe fall 2015, spring of 2016 or something, including a bunch of Japanese foils that were scandalously cheap at the time. Um, but I have only sold a couple of along the way, so I would love to pull them out of the box of shame and, and push them down the pipeline. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of those floating around for me too. Um, <clears throat> back to basics, uh, Ultimate Masters and non-foils, uh, just a standard back to basics, 15 to 21. Um, also rebounding, you remember back to basics was... Uh, the card James had extraordinarily profitable uh, inside information on. He actually bought a, a <laughs> house in Toronto with the money uh, on those five yeah. on the sorry seven dollar increase on the UMA copies. Yeah, I ran a big, huge Bitcoin scam that uh, involved somehow managed to involve back to basics for knowledge. And uh, the whole thing's very complicated, but all you got to know is I got super rich and it's yeah, all like I, at your uh, expense. In me personally too actually i was also suffering for it and yeah and in the meantime uh worth noting that back to basics was you know closing in a hundred dollars before the reprint and crashed super super hard but probably too hard i mean it's only really relevant uh in legacy but uh, enough people want to own a copy of the card that uh, you saw a 50% gain on the rebound which is almost certainly a mixture of natural demand and speculation um, it's not going to matter, though, if we don't see further waves of this set. Um, that is what is going to be required to reverse yep. trend here. Uh, then Vault of Whispers out of Mirrodin foils 10 to 15, uh, so 50% gain. It's an 8,000 EDH decks. I suspect that this is mostly just supply is ultra low. Somebody bought one copy, two copies, and it moved the needle. I don't think there's anything going on that would push Vault of Whispers more than it would have just, you know, when there's so few. I, I'm always Anything. surprised to to realize again, and it's at least the third time I've come to this realization and then forgotten it, that the artifact lands aren't banned in EDH. Um, it's bonkers to be able to sack <laughs> lands to Brea and all of the other uh, interactions that involve the sacking of artifacts amongst the various artifact centric commanders, and that and they have very little uh, motivation to reprint these things. Um, because they're only playable really in EDH, uh, banned in modern, banned in legacy. I'm assuming. Uh, the fo- the artifact lands are. Wait, are they banned in? Uh, they wait, have to wait. be banned. Otherwise, no, they're legal in legacy. Are you serious? Yeah. And yeah. Yet there's I think no. There's they, no arc band ravager style deck using them in there. They were insane in standard, but I don't know. Oh, it's so crazy. Yeah, uh, on, on turn four, you can be like doing whole, crazy shenanigans. Legal too. I don't know. I, I honestly, I, I, I'm pretty sure people have tried it, but I mean, you're saying on turn four, but like that's a turn slower than than legacy generally. I mean, legacy has plenty of strategies that can win on turn. No, two. no, I'm sure that you can do things way faster than turn four with these. Um, but I, I, by have cannot at all claim to be an expert in why um, classic uh, affinity doesn't work in legacy. So I'll bypass that to say simply that 
I don't see them reprinting these. If they did, uh, it would be in like a fall commander product or something. They wouldn't be foil. Um, so these foils seem like very safe holds and acquisitions. Um, I'm not sure they're by any means a priority spec, but I would be happy to get them under 15 and assume that at some point they'll be worth 25 to 30 just on the modicum of demand from EDH. Yeah, they've reprinted them several times, just never in foil. Right. Uh, which is generally what I would expect to see here. Uh, I can't I can't even recall, though, where they've reprinted them. Uh, it was in like a plane chase, I believe. Um, plane chase. Uh, really? Okay, I think it was just a plane chase stack. I knew it had, was in plane chase. I thought it was a more, but it's just plane chase. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so. they could they could definitely show up at some point somewhere, but I don't see it being the kind of pro- like it's already bad enough that they put dig through time and ultimate masters. That seemed like a weird one. Um, I don't see them putting the full cycle of five artifact lands that are mostly unplayed. Right. Yeah, that would be. It's a lot a of slots choice. for a very narrow usage and you would really need to have a strong using sacking artifacts theme um and it's tough to balance like if if one of your themes is affinity style artifact interactions and you include those lands at common for gosh gosh sake like uh, it seems like that could go off the rails so quickly so i think that these foils are pretty pretty safe bets uh yeah i i'm i'm inclined to agree with you i don't know I think it'll be a little hard to get rid of them. Like not hard, but like there's not going to be a lot of demand, but you will, uh, you're not going to lose money on them at least. It's the kind of thing where you just, you put out a a tweet or something that is targeted at Brea commander players specifically. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Okay, let's move on. Uh, where are we looking? It's creeping tar pit foils out of Ultimate Masters thirteen to twenty. Another uh, another rebounding Ultimate Masters card starting to pick up from uh, having dropped down. Um, really, just goes to show that if you need to be buying, if there's anything from UMA you want, you got to hurry up and do it now. Yeah, the it, at least so far, based on what we know. Yes. Um, the. The thing about further waves is if it was the same size wave as we've already seen, I think that would create some significant downward pressure. If it's a wave that is 20 or 25% of the wave we've seen, I don't think it matters much at all. Um, Because a wave of that size or smaller would add so few new foil rares, foil mythics, and box toppers that it probably wouldn't have much impact on the market. And given that people have now seen one rebound, it will embolden them to participate in uh attacking the set a second time similar to what we saw with uh inventions when they um spiked retraced and then spiked again in the summer like three to six months later in the winter and spring of 2017 yeah which is which is fair uh all right what do you else you got for us what's next all right, so next on the list we've got uh creeping tar pit also out of Ultimate Masters, foils moving from 13 to 20. Um, not played in too many decks in Modern. Uh, see some play in EDH. Um, but again, rebounding because they got just too tantalizingly low and people started going after the card. Mm-hmm. Um, on a completely different axis, we have Elder Spawn out of Legends, which is a reserve list rare, moving from in theory 14 to 24. One of those situations where 
you know, bottom of the barrel. People are just scooping up what they can when they see a decent price. And it's unclear to me whether it was at 24, then a $14 copy was listed and then that knocked the market price down and then it's popped back up after the fact. Or if the remaining cheap copies were drained and now we're stuck with whatever the remainder is. Either way, it's not the kind of thing you want to be prioritizing. But if you're sitting around on a set of legends, you don't need to be in any rush to sell that. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, if you're sitting around on a set of legends, you're probably not spending too much time thinking about whether or not Elder Spawn doubled up in price this week. <laughs> that's, <Fair. laughs> that's something different. <laughs> All right. Next on the list, we've got uh, Ultimate Masters box topper, Balefire Dragon, which I thought found amusing, moving from 30 to 53, um, 76% gain. This is one of the cards people were like comparing to Tree of Perdition. Uh, sorry, uh, Perdition? No. Tree of... What was the green tree that everybody hated from Tree M25? of Redemption? Redemption is the yes. Shadows of Innistrad, um, black version of that card. Right. Yeah. So people were acting like Balefire Dragon was going to be like a, like, you know, fake crocodile tears moment if you got it as your box topper. And certainly you would much rather have a Liliana. However, um, given that this thing has already doubled up pretty much um, and probably has further to go, uh, it's worth reminding everyone that this is an 8,400 reported EDH decks, which is more than many cards that we've called out as specs at various points that have done well. Um, Belfire Dragon is a useful card in EDH. It just looks silly to modern and legacy players where it's just ridiculous and would never get played. Um, but the box toppers are, you know, there's some opportunities to scoop some of these overseas pretty cheaply. And, you know, this is one of the ones where if there is a significant supply influx at some point, you could see this retrace and set up another opportunity to grab a couple. It's not the kind of thing I want to be holding 10 of, but I'd be certainly be happy to pick up two or three of them. Agreed. Yeah, it's, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not sure what percentage of people that are playing Balefire Dragon are going to want foils, especially at 50 or 60 or $70. It's definitely a little more casual of a card, which is why everyone kind of laughs at it, but it maintains that price. <clears throat> or at least it maintains, you know, eight or 9,000 EDH decks. But uh, in any case, you're probably, you're not going to lose money. Um, so if it's something you're interested in playing or, you know, you have a hunch, you can buy it and not worry about it at least. Yeah, exactly. Next on the list, we got Yavimai Enchantress from Urza's Destiny. Foils moving from 6 to 18. Very mild EDH play on this card. So I, I think this follows into the category we've been tracking for months of uh, foils from the early years of Magic Foils um, that happen to be getting drawn down upon by people that are looking opportunistically at their supply lists um, and trying to stash a few copies away here and there on the assumption that they'll be able to out them maybe to buy lists down the road um i would be so happy to publish an article if somebody wanted to come at us with the i've been buying mediocre foils for years and here's how it's done well for me sure you know i i think that totally works depending on how you plan on outing them you know if you've got a case in a storefront it's an entirely different ball game uh but for the guy shipping it from their office home office uh you, you gotta do something different it's just no. you're just gonna get stuck holding this stuff for so so long. Like right. the card kingdom buy list is five dollars and seventy two cents credit for forty cash um for that foil. So got a ways to go to catch up to the supposed retail value. Mm-hmm. Uh this final card though on the list though is was called out by a couple of people in the MTG Finance hashtag last week. 
Um, I'm assuming because they were targeting it. Uh, Gutshot, Modern Masters 2015, foils moving from $3 to $10 for a 200% plus gain. On the back of being a three of typically in the Arclight Phoenix decks that are doing well in Modern, uh, won a RPTQ or was it a PTQ this weekend? It was a Modern Regional PTQ. Um, with 266 players, where Is It Phoenix finished first, Gut Shot was three in the main. Um, didn't get reprinted in Ultimate Masters, hasn't been reprinted since 2015. Before that, it was New Phyrexia. Um, so uh, these foils could probably push higher. I could see them hitting 15 or 20 if Is It Phoenix stays in the mix. Yeah, really, at, at 10 bucks for them, yeah. Uh strong demand could push that to 15 or 16 dollars i i i would probably sell them for 10 if i could get it and just accept that there could be more headroom uh that i don't get the problem is if you think the arc lights just having a moment like death you know like that shadow did where it was popular for couple months or whatever death shadow did it was good for a while actually yeah, and it still is honestly and and just but and yeah, just yeah but well and top eight did the same tournament um sure so De- death shadow definitely had a period where it was played heavily and won a lot and then retraced back to normal strong play patterns yeah if you think the Arclight deck is a similar scenario, but it's going to have a shorter and perhaps brighter window in the sun or time in the sun. Then you sell these. Now, if you think it is here to stay, you hold these at 10 and I can't tell you which one it is. My gut says Arclight is closer to humans. It's not easy. It doesn't have an easy access of attack decks that rely heavily on the graveyard for instance always have to face down an increased number of rest in peace and sideboards and so forth um i'm not it's not clear to me what sideboard cards are particularly effective against the phoenix deck um because they can ultimately just uh you know cast through any problems they have with your the graveyard they can start casting phoenixes just for full value and go at you they can still put a crackling drake on the table and, and come after you and they have the ability to lightning bolt you to death which is always a benefit if you're trying to be cute so it's it's not clear whether it's you know good for six months a year or it's just going to be around for a couple of years however if we look at the pattern of what happened with the foils for manamorphos which is pretty similar in terms of its supply profile to gutshot uh, i think that we can it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that these can at least push 15 uh, I found a few lying around. If I had 20, I'd be starting to test the waters and selling right now. If you just have a couple lying around, then you don't need to be in any brush. I think you can wait like until after the holidays and then dip your toe in the water and try to sell a few. Yeah, I just hold the one or two or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's modern season in terms of like we tend to see modern staples pick up heading into um, you know, the first few major tournaments of the winter after people get through their holiday credit card bills and so forth might be a decent chance to get these out the door at 15 to 20 yeah yeah um okay let's move on segment two our cards to watch uh so we can get through all this oh god we have 20 minutes this could be a three segment show all right number one james fired off nexus of fate six to 12 month timeline 
talking about the foils, which is all there is. Uh, confidence level of eight. This is from M19, which everybody thought was going to be $100 for a minute, and then it faded out of the meta in standard, and poof, the spec collapsed. Um, but only after a bunch of people made money. Um, and now you can get back in on this card for $12. Uh, I'd be looking to sell it around 20 for a 67% gain. Less of these in stock on TCG right now than Teferi. And even if it doesn't spike uh, in standard on the back of Azorius hype, you still got EDH as your backup plan in the longer term. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally on board. If foil Nexus of Fates are down to 12 bucks. That's very good. The card is is quite po- it's reasonably popular in EDH. Uh, will continue to be so because it's such a good counter to that strategy. I'm there. I like it. All right. Your first pick? Uh, so uh, this week I'm working off of the Ravnica Allegiance spoilers. Um, and we know that counters are coming back for Simic, which is not too surprising. So everything that I picked this week is sort of in that realm. Uh, first card of the week, Azuri Claw of Progress out of the Commander product. I think it was 2015, um, maybe 16. Azuri Claw of Progress is about 10 bucks right now. Uh, we know Simic's all about counters. He is a, a popular card for that. Every time I end up with any in my possession, they sell quickly. Um, and he does some good stuff for you. It's whenever you play a small creature, two or less, you get an experience counter, and then every combat you can dump 1-1 one, one counters equal to the experience counters you have onto another creature, which basically means if you play a bunch of small dudes, he suddenly is generating four, five, six, seven, one, one counters at a time, um, which is makes him a powerful commander because you can put them all over the place. Uh, and also he's just going to work in the 99 of anything else that wants um, one one counters uh, i'm thinking of that enchantment that we saw where you win the game if you have like 20 counters on it or something like that so simic ascendancy yeah. so you know uh you can grab azurius for about 10 bucks right now i believe uh maybe a little bit more than that here and there there's some uh, a solid supply but with a new wave of simic coming and uh, the new commanders that are likely to come with it there's going to be a surge in, in interest in the in the um, guild and in the mechanic. And I think there's going to be a push on all of the decent counters cards. Yeah, I can buy into this easily. I think people are going to be pretty uh, stoked about trying to work with Simic Ascendancy and who knows what other, what else we're getting. I mean, if, if Simic Ascendancy represents a counters theme, entirely likely that we're getting a bunch of other counters related cards that are also going to reinforce those themes. And there are already great setup cards like doubling season and parallel lives and all sorts of token and counters themed cards in those uh, from a variety of different sets, including past Ravnica sets that all play into a big basket of fun cards to fool around with. I've had a Simic based counters deck for years in EDH and it's always a good time to pull it out as long as you don't mind fondling like 50 different dice for Three minutes a turn. Uh, that sounds like every board game I've ever played. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my next pick is Rakdos Charm Foils from RTR. Um, shout out to Jason Alt for uh, highlighting this as the card he felt had he had dealt the most damage with in his uh, magic career. Um, on the back of the portion of this card that allows you to deal have creatures deal damage to their controllers. So anybody who's running a, a swarm style uh, deck in EDH can take can basically die instantly in the face of a instant speed Rakdos charm. It's in ten thousand EDH decks. It's only been re it's re- been, been reprinted twice, but only in commander sets. So the original foils are the only ones sitting around. 
and could easily end up drained if people uh, get some interesting Rakdos commanders out of Ravnica Allegiance, uh, leading to a sh- little hype spike on some uh, Rakdos-related cards. I think if you just go after the a handful of these at six bucks and look to out them over twelve, you'd be probably like six to twelve months out and pick up a modest return you might just end up by listing mm-hmm. them i think um i was going to ask you if the uh, if you had seen jason's comment there and if that's why you had picked it uh it is a yep it is a powerful card in that format for sure um does all sorts of stuff it's you know i think it's something people skip over a lot of the times because it's not like a huge sexy flashy card uh like you want every slot in your edh deck to be but man those two mana cards you can play at instant speed that do something good are really good in that format um and with no reason to expect these to show up in foil they're not i i there's no way they're putting these in the new Ravnica. Well, we didn't get charms in the first um, Ravnica, you know, so I wouldn't versions. expect we'll get them for the second right. set of guilds. And Yeah, and that's what I mean. It's just like it's not going to happen. And the other thing is that the other two modes in this are so great. I mean, they're all useful in EDH. The yep. Swarm one is, might even be the most situational. The other one is Destroy Target Artifact. There's always an artifact target worth killing in EDH. And the third mode is Exile All Cards from Target Player's Graveyard, which again, is almost always useful. Yeah, it's just good all around. So yeah, for six bucks on that, I'm, that seems quite quite reasonable. It's only me. an uncommon, but its current inventory level is significantly lower than most in-print mythics. So. Yeah. Uh, okay, so my next card, uh, <laughs> this is a little eager. Uh, <clears throat> Boral of the Hall Clade. Yep. That is a that is a weird name. Um, he was the commander, one of the commanders from the. Uh, oh shoot! Let me, which one was this? Gate crash. Uh, Dragon's Maze. He was from Dragon's Maze. A three mana one four doubles the number of counter counters on a artifact creature or land. So if you've got, so what was that? Sim, what was it? Simic Ascension. It's if it Ascendancy. if your upkeep. If you have like Ascendancy, if you have like twenty on there, you win, right? Yes. Uh, so if you have if you have twenty one one counters on a creature, and then you activate Voral, you put twenty more, which means you put twenty counters on Ascendancy, which means you will win. So he opens up the doors to some nonsense. Uh, <clears throat> he's a dollar thirty right now. I think you might be able to see the foils jump up to five, six, seven, maybe even ten. Um, if he's really popular, if he really does some good work, he's in five thousand, five and a half thousand EDH decks, which is pretty decent. And if we get an interesting commander, we could definitely see a new commander show up and push a bunch more new decks of this strategy. Now, to be for you know full disclosure, I've got like I don't know sixty of these or something like that. They were on sale for twenty five cents a while ago, and I grabbed them. The foils uh, or the non foils? The foils. Yeah. So I like. That I a own lot. a bunch, right? Yeah, I mean, 25 cents, I was like, sure. So just so you know, I have some, and this is me. I'm not telling you this because I want you to buy them out and make me money. Because if everyone listening to this cast goes and buys them, that doesn't help me because no one out there who actually wants them will buy them. This only works if people want them for their decks. So I'm just hoping they do, and you get to know that I'm hoping that they do. (laughs) There aren't actually very many left under $2 on TCG, and then the ramp starts. So 
it's only about 25 to 30 orders away from jumping up. It doesn't really make sense given that there's 6,000 decks reported um, and given that that is only a small representation of the number of people actually playing uh, the card that the foils are so insanely cheap. I mean, yes, Dragon's Maze was a total pile, but a foil rare from that set should at least be worth 5 or $10 if it's that popular in EDH. Um, so you could easily get stuck holding these for a while, but if Simic takes off in the next little while, I, it's such a low risk spec to pick up, say, 10 of these for less than 15 bucks and just cross your fingers as one of your you know, lower priority specs. Right. Yeah. So that's why I'm tossing it out there. All right. All right. Uh, Vampiric Tutor, the 2018 judge promo whose art I do not like. Um, I snapped up a few (laughs) of these at 50 bucks the other day because they seem like shoe ins to hit 80. Inventory is not particularly, sorry, is uh, fairly well drained and draining. Um, The fact that it was printed in Eternal Masters and got a Judge promo last year suggests to me that we're... And we just got Demonic Tutor in Ultimate Masters suggests to me that it's not going to be a priority reprint for another couple of years. And uh, that with combined with the fact that it's off the docket for further distribution through Judges uh, says to me that getting these as low as you possibly can and planning to hold for 6 to 12 months will probably give you like $20 per copy or something. Sure. I, I do think vampiric tutors in general are good picks. I um, picked the uh, old, I think it was FNM promo a while ago, the old art um, myself and 50 bucks for the judges is so low uh, for a card that's so popular. Um, you know, that's not a huge jump 50 to 80 percentage wise, but you know, it's still 30 bucks. So if you can shift four of them and make 25 bucks a piece, it's a hundred dollars. I mean, that's not bad. Hundred and your buy-in was two hundred, and you made a hundred bucks on it. I mean, it's a fifty percent return. Yep, after fees. I mean, the the Eternal Masters foils uh, that also had new art are sitting in and around, in theory, ninety ninety five. But there's literally one copy left on TCG Player for one hundred and ten. And the original Judge foils with the Visions art, uh, there are um, none at near mint. So you can't tell me that this is not going to catch up. Oh, did the did the one I picked finally run out? Uh, I haven't looked in a while. Yeah, I don't I don't see any. I'm gonna go look. And a near mint. Uh yeah, the no, I think you had something else checked. The Vampire Tutor with the old art judge promo. There are twelve vendors uh about Oh yeah, yeah. Um 18 copies cheapest is a hundred dollars um but you hit 100 110 120 uh you know in the in the space of two play sets so 150 yeah yeah i had my filters messed up so yeah we got a few copies under 105 then it jumps to 120 then to 135 150 181 um once those solidify and drain to almost nothing the other judge promo's got to come up it cannot stay at half to a third of the other right. promos. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, All last right, your final week, uh, Deep Glow Skate. Uh, this is the fat manta ray that doubles all the permanents uh, or counters on a permanent when it comes into play. So this does everything EDH players want to do. It doubles things. It interacts with counters. Uh, it's a fish. 
it's blue. What more could you want? Um, it was printed in Commander 2016. It showed up again in the second Commander anthology, but those are generally fairly low print runs. Uh, these guys are about 650 right now, They're, and it's in about 6,000 EDH decks. I think uh, I don't think that those Commander anthologies add a lot of supply to the market, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a surge of token-based decks. Uh, I could see these climbing up to $10, $12, $15 pretty reasonably. Yeah, and we can still source these over in Europe for like three euro. Ooh, it's tempting. Yep. In fact, there's a <laughs> there. Yeah, there's somebody with eighteen copies at three fifty euro each. That sounds like a slam dunk. Ooh, that is really nice. I checked this card over there on multiple occasions, and it never had quite enough of a margin for it to be worth it. But maybe it is now. Yep. Yeah, I like the pick. Um, given that we've you know, seen it recently. I don't think we're going to, I think we will definitely see it again. Like we've talked about a commander masters type set. You know, they've said they're retiring master sets, but don't believe that at all. Like there's going to be some other reformulation of a product like that, that involves reprints and premium cards and has a focus on X and Y format. And at some point it's going to be commander. They're going to break out of doing just the commander decks in the fall for sure. Um, you could see it show up in a battle bond type thing or a conspiracy type thing or whatever. And we will get maybe new art and foils for the first time, which will be a big deal. Um, but in the meantime, for as long as that doesn't happen, you've got an opportunity to get in on these and try to double up. Cool. All uh, right. So we're going to quickly go through our metagame week in review. There wasn't a ton of action that is particularly relevant because the WMCQ, of course, the last ever potentially uh, World Magic Cup where the various countries of the world's fielded teams that had qualified and battled against each other was this weekend. And they were playing standard decks, um, most of which uh, were things we've already seen. There were a few uh, relatively interesting innovations, but then again, we're moving into uh, adding a new set to standard by the time the holiday season settles and we get a few weeks on. So it's not entirely clear that you want to be... Your standard specs at this point are probably not based on existing decks in the meta. They are based on things that might develop when that new set comes out. Um, probably a lot better off looking at you know what white-black cards might about, be about to take off than what's currently going on in standard. There was a regional PTQ that we took note of where it was Is It Phoenix, Dredge, Dredge, Living End, Burn, Hollow One, Death Shadow, and Humans... Nothing too exciting there. Uh, most notable thing to me is that Is It Phoenix is still, you know, winning tournaments <laughs> and consistently top eighting, um, underscoring that you know things like Manamorphose foils and Gutshot foils and Is It Phoenix uh, Arclight Phoenix foils and Thing in the Ice foils are probably going to make everybody some money um, if they haven't been already. Uh, anything else you got to add off of all that? No, I, I think for me the takeaway here is that. As tempting as it is to look at what's doing well in standard today, we need to be thinking about what's going to change with the introduction of the other five guilds, um, <clears throat> keeping a close eye on what what looks like it might be a powerhouse in the new set, but also what looks like it could slot really well into existing decks. That's going to be a big deal. Um, you know, if they print a Rakdos car, a Rakdos themed card that's only red, you know, it's not actually red black, uh, and it works really well in the standard version of, you know, the is it Drake's deck? Uh, that could be a big deal. So those are kind of, I think, your first level. First level is cards that slot into existing decks. Second level is new strategies. But that's definitely if you're interested in standard and trying to do well, that's where you want to start looking. 
Um, and this is a time of year where you want to be checking the articles and commentary from pros and people who are heavily invested in the standard scene, because they're going to give you the best idea of what cards look good and will work well. So keep an eye there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was also some minor innovations as France won this tournament. Israel finished second, which was uh, the big story there was that Shahar Shenhar had his team won. He would have been one of the only players ever to have been on a winning WMCQ team and having won the world championship. Um, And given that he had won the world championships twice back to back, um, that would have been quite the accomplishment. Uh, Unfortunately, now that they're taking this whole tournament series away and the World Magic Cup is dead for at least the foreseeable future, um, he may never get the the chance to to, uh, add that to the resume, which is kind of too bad. Yeah. A bummer, and people are yeah, people are really bummed about the loss of the MC MWCQ or MCWMQ. I I personally don't really care. Like, I guess it's matter, it's important to some people, but like we're gonna have some sort of events of these nature. It's just gonna be under a different name. Um, you know, nationals was here, and then nationals were gone, and then it came back. And I, I don't know. I, I don't feel strongly about any of these series, and I don't think that people other than those who play on them tend to feel too strongly either. But maybe I'm just uh, not particularly patriotic. <laughs> I think some international communities really do care. I mean, the South Americans are have been very notable for their support of their their community building and the support of their teams and the the individual players involved. I think it, it's you know part of it is communities that are more isolated from the U.S. centric portions of the various tours and GP circuit and so forth. When they do well, it's probably it's I think it should be that much more impressive because they don't have uh, the same access to resources and opportunities that the teams in the U.S. do. But Well, that's a, that's a <clears throat> remarkably uh, fair point, and it is my, uh, my fault for not considering that. It's very easy for me to be dismissive of it here in America where there's a robust tournament structure. All the interest is here. Um, so m- my comment was, was definitely uh, geocentric. Uh, <clears throat> so I, now, I, that's a good point. I respect that it could matter a lot more to other communities. Now, while pointing that out, it's not like I put time aside to watch it this weekend. No, yeah, well, we're all we're all busy. People got things going on. It's heading into the holidays. Lots of stuff to do. But yeah, I, I I think that I agree with your perspective that it definitely matters more to the people that are, um, you know, pursuing it or are close to the people pursuing it than it does to the general magic community. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so moving right along, just wanted to talk a little bit, I guess, about. Um, uh, the Ravnica Legion's previews we saw. Um, UMA, in terms of UMA price retraces, we already kind of covered that in section one. So the TL, TDLR is, uh, sorry, TLDR is, you know, they're making a move. So you should review inventory levels. We mentioned Balefire Dragon on our list. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that Balefire Dragon was almost certainly targeted. It is down to seven listings on TCG Player, which is. Uh, for the record, below Snapcaster Mage, which has 21. <laughs> um, I'm talking about the box toppers here. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely targeted. Um, I find it hard to believe that they sold more Balefire Fire Dragons than Snapcaster Mages, um, although price point certainly has something to do with it. Um, currently, the, mo- the best-selling box toppers on TCG Player, uh, I'm assuming that they update this on a weekly basis, like it might be rear-facing for seven days or something. Uh, Life in the Loam is at the top. That was one of my picks last week, so no huge surprise. Um, Balefire Dragon, Snapcaster Mage, Engineered Explosives, which I believe was yours last week. Um, 
Ancient Tomb, Reanimate, Maelstrom Pulse, Bitter Blossom. Through the Breach has fallen from the number one slot down to like number eight or something. If Balefire is getting bought out, that's an interesting one to target just because it's not the type of card you would expect that type of activity on. I'm not, I, I wouldn't be expecting to see a high throughput of sales on Balefire Dragon, even if your buyout is successful and you do manage to move the price. There's not a lot of people rushing to the market for that, but it could work. It also probably helps that it uh, was quite cheap to begin with, where you might not have that opportunity with some of the more, um, some of the ones that have more interest paid to them, like your Teferis or what have you. Uh, overall, I think the box hoppers are in a great place. Again, I, I wrote all about them this morning on MTG Price on the Watchtower article. Uh, but the short version is I think they're mostly all in pretty good shape. Uh, and there are a couple that are that are real well positioned. I liked uh, Demonic Tutor and Dark Depths, I think, were the two that I picked up on this morning. But really, you could go after any of them. Dark Depths is something I'm targeting overseas where the price is yeah. very attractive right now. The, um, the, the inventory levels for these look like inventions after the first wave of targeting. And as such, it doesn't really matter if there are exactly, if the box topper print run was roughly equivalent to masterpieces or say double as much. The reality is that the demand has caught up with the supply. Um, and I actually put out some information on Twitter earlier this week where I was talking about the relative rarity of the box toppers versus um, uh, foil rares from uh, UMA and foil mythics from UMA. And what I pointed out was that the odds of any given box topper are, of course, 2.5% because you get one in every box and you have a 1 in 40 chance uh, because there are 40 box toppers. Whereas UMA rare foils are any given rare uh, is like is a 2.83% chance to be in your box. So they are slightly more rare than any given foil rare, but uh, almost twice as populous as mythic foils, any given mythic foil, because they are 1.25% to be in your box. Um, and despite that, the box toppers are holding premiums of two to three times, even the foil mythics. So that's what we're saying here is there is a rarity lower than the foil mythics by ha by fully half that is selling for twice the price. So the premium on the style of the box toppers and the hype around them is completely countering their relatively more populous rarity versus foil mythics. Mm -hmm. That is fairly fascinating. Um and under underlines why wizards can is is getting into this groove of pumping out premium product at high price tags because it works because people love these cards and they are buying them. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it, it's curious to see how all this is working and, and how the numbers line up. Um, yeah, the market just keeps absorbing this stuff, right? Like, and all of these have been successes, uh, you know, aside from, well, I can't say all of them, uh, you know, the invocations were a bit of a bump, but for the most part, all of these limited edition products have been, have really been doing, a, doing well. Uh, they're been testing that market pretty heavily and it is, it is coming back with a resounding yes, please give us that stuff. I think it does establish an upper limit on what the foil mythics can get to on cards like Snapcaster and Liliana. I think the market will probably widen the gap between, say, Box Topper Liliana and uh, Mythic Foil, Pack Foil 
pack mythic foil Liliana of the Veil because it doesn't make sense that the two can be equivalent um, or very close to each other. Either the box topper Liliana goes to four or 500, like we saw with Masterpiece Soul Ring, or the foil mythic Liliana's fall. The only circumstance where that doesn't necessarily happen, or they both get pulled up together, is that if the market drains all the box toppers and then the mythic foils are left and the market starts to drain on those, then you could see appreciation. But for as long as the prices remain relatively close and or the the box toppers are still in stock, I think you're gonna you might have trouble unloading, especially some of the lesser foil mythics if they also appear in a box topper and the box topper is relatively cheap. I think that's part of what happened with Balefire Dragon, right? Like Balefire Dragon foils versus box toppers didn't have much of a gap between them probably. Um, it was like a $15 gap or something. And people were like, well, it's played in enough EDH decks. May as well scoop a bunch of these at 30 and hope they go to 50 or 60. And sure enough, that's where we're sitting right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <clears throat> it's how you'd make that move. I was just out of curiosity, just poked my head over to eBay to check out Guilds of Ravnica Mythic Edition, because I know we have uh, been kind of keeping an eye on that. The uh, as of yesterday, two of them sold at five hundred and thirty dollars. Uh, yep, because there was another fifteen percent coupon this weekend. Oh yeah, that's what it was. Uh, and the cheapest right so, now is five hundred and fifty bucks for a sealed a Guilds of Ravnica I, set. I went in late on Saturday. I think was when the coupon was going down. Uh, it was going till three in the morning that night looking for stuff to pick up. And I just couldn't because despite it being so much cheaper, like with the 15% coupon versus what you would expect to find on TCG where you're paying the, the extra taxes there usually, which could be up to a 20% difference. That coupon that those two 15% coupons in the same week were so effective at draining um, a lot of magic product across the board that it was almost impossible to find good deals on things. A lot of box toppers that were selling for 50 on TCG were no cheaper than 80. So for instance, while there were still life from the loans at 60, um, they were pushed up to 80 on eBay because that coupon was just that effective, yeah. which is, explains why TCG was running their 5% uh, kickback, which is like the max they seem willing to give um, in response to the eBay deals. And we're going to see more of that. If we see more coupons like that rolled out before the end of the year to kind of like pad the Q4 numbers for eBay, then we're going to continue to see pressure on those premium magic products. Um, and it's one of the reasons I really like being in a position where a lot of my stuff is in the 50 to $200 range that I'm selling, like whether it's play sets of $50 cards or, um, you know, play sets of $25 cards or a $200 masterpiece or something. That's the kind of inventory you want to have on eBay during these sales, because that's the people don't want to save 15% on $6. They want to save 15% on the max amount they are allowed to. And people start adding stuff that they were not thinking of buying. Just thinking, hey, I got to take advantage of the sale while I can. Yep. Yes, they do. <laughs> and if you're specking on something like box toppers, like say you were buying Life from the Loams plus the 15% off coupon, and now the cheapest copy is 80, you've already made your bones. Like I could probably turn around today, post an eight, like $76 copy of Life from the Loam and turn it around in less than a week for a very significant return. Yeah. And we just talked about that last week. Uh, yeah, I, I have definitely been inclined to buy things that I wouldn't have because of the coupons or I've pushed the purchase up more so than I would have. I mean, really I wasn't, wasn't like rushing out to buy Guilds of Ravnica, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And then there was a 15% coupon on toys and I found a, a pretty good, pr well-priced one anyways. And I was like, okay, 
that's it. That'll do it. Uh, and I bought it where otherwise I probably wouldn't have. They're, they are effective to get product moved. Now, I wonder with the coupons kind of hitting on eBay frequently, if come January when all that stops, if we'll see sort of a, a retrace on the product now that there aren't coupons moving the market, moving the inventory out of the market, or what I more likely what I expect is that that'll be it, right? Like there's nothing left to backfill the, the copies that got sold in the sale for the most part. Um, it, the, the price is just what it is now. Yeah. Cause I mean, vendors were, were not strongly motivated to hold back on ultimate masters. The people that went deep fronted a lot of capital and it was in their best interest to pop it, post it, sell it and move on, recoup the capital and get it back in the system and on to the next thing. Um, I'm sure some of the bigger vendors are, and definitely the distributors have held back some. Like I, my understanding of how the distributors work generally is that with stuff like this, there is a distributor reserve that is put aside to fill orders from clients who managed to like that they're trying to maintain a good relationship with where they want to like say refill channel fireballs um, uh, order uh, at some point, whereas the little guy in middle of nowhere USA may not get access to a, to a further order. I also got some reports from overseas that there was going to be some form of a restock soon, um, but that it was going to be relatively minor versus the first wave. And that it was going to be the end of the line through at least those particular distribution channels. Um, I guess the last point I want to make is couple, call out a couple of cards that we got uh, as early spoilers for Ravnica Allegiance today. Um, Lavinia Azorius Renegade is the one that we referenced earlier. This is a 2-2 human soldier legend, uh, legendary creature for white and a blue. Um, two important pieces of text that are relevant in both modern and legacy, if not EDH. Each opponent can't cast non-creature spells with converted mana cost greater than the number of lands that player controls. So if you're tapping elves to cast stuff for extra, if you're using Convoke um, to uh, ca uh, cast a Court of Calling, if you are um, casting Storm under a Goblin Electromancer uh, and casting cards that uh, cost more than the number of lands you have in play, none of that works with Lavinia on the table. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. So if you're casting free spells um, and you didn't use mana to cast it, uh, looking at things like Gutshot, for instance, don't yeah. work under that, right? Because no mana was spent. Force of Will. Yep. And any free, yep, Force of Will, any free spells that might be coming off um, uh, out from Exile or something. So for instance, one of my, I asked uh, Hellcat MGG um the the player that lost her deck last week and then the community refilled her her spirits deck she plays on the scg tour um and asked her if she thought she'd be testing lavinia in spirits because even though lavinia isn't a spirit the interaction with spell keller spell queller is just absurd you cast spell queller exile the spell if they kill spell queller that spell usually comes back um but under lavinia because they would be casting it for free they wouldn't get it at all what does she have to say so they would have to deal with Lavinia first, then deal with the Spell Queller to unlock And what did she say? She said, yeah, she'd probably yeah. be testing it at least it for board purposes. That's reasonable. Um, I mean, really just stopping, um, <clears throat> like, getting in the way on turns two and three and possibly four uh, for decks with uh, Monodorks, right? Because, like, if you try, if you have three lands in a Noble Hierarch, it stops Collected Company. So just those little edges and delaying those spells by a turn is pretty obnoxious. Uh, it is a curious card. A lot of amusing interactions. Whenever we see cards like that, they always 
feel like they always have something something curious the, the inner all the the extent of the interactions take time to 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 make themselves known and they can end up being a lot better than you think because there's so many corner cases that when you add them all up it becomes a real advantage over the course of the game and this one's kind of cool because you also have that promo too right the promo is pretty pretty nifty looking and there'll be russian versions of that promo so if it's like a game day promo or something like single day distribution um then they're going to seem very populous on eBay for a while, and then they're going to dry up. And if it posts up in any two of modern uh, legacy and EDH, those promos are going to be sought after down the road. Well, that it is the game day promo, isn't it? Isn't that what we're looking at? I thought. Uh, yeah, store, cha- store championship. So it looks like it, it probably goes to the winner of your LGS's game day. Yeah, which sounds about right. In which case, that's not a whole lot of distribution, sum total. Nope. So I like those. Um, Simic Ascendancy is is the rare that says is blue and a green. One green, blue, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. It's an enchantment. Whenever one or more plus one, plus one counters are put on a creature you control, put that many growth counters on Simic Ascendancy. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, if Simic Ascendancy has 20 or more growth counters on it, you win the game. So in Simic, you're doubling your counters all the time. Um, with your picks from this week, with doubling season, with all sorts of different stuff. And Simic Ascendancy is definitely going to end up in a, in a bunch of Simic decks. For standard purposes, Rakdos Firewheeler caught my eyes, not from a financial perspective, but just because I used to love playing Grixis control decks with Flame Tongue Kavu back in the day. And this thing is busted by comparison. Double black, double red, sure, that's, that's a rough casting cost, but it's a 4-3. When it comes in the battlefield, you do two to the opponent, to an opponent and two to a creature or planeswalker. Yeah, it's pretty reasonable. I mean, black, black, red, red, if you're already in that deck, it's going to be hard to be play that in Grixis, but it will be fine in uh, Rakdos, Rakdos decks. I, when was the last time we had a competitive Rakdos deck? Those don't happen too often. At least, not, at least they're no. just like, eh, I mean, I guess you'll see them Something like a Hazard Red could have black in it. Sure. Which brings me to my next point, which is that Spectacle wasn't what I thought it was. Um, I assumed when we saw Light Up the Stage that Spectacle, um, as an alternative casting cost, that was less than the cost of the card. So, for instance, Light Up the Stage, Sorcery, two and a red. Exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn. You may play those cards. And the Spectacle alternate casting cost is one red. So I assumed it was one red, discard a card. And then you could play it for less, and it was it would feel somewhat similar to a faithless looting in that in that circumstance. But no, it's if the opponent if an opponent has lost life this turn, yeah. which means if if they've bolted themselves, I mean, sorry, if you've bolted them or they've shot, uh, fetched or something, and uh, stupidly on your turn, I don't know why they're doing that. They're Power bad they're players, I guess. Speed um, sure. Bottom line being that they are uh, they've taken damage. Then you're exiling two cards off the top of your library until and until the end of your next turn. You can play those spells in burn in modern. Could you run uh, this thing in, in modern? It would be it'd be even better, right? Because the card draw is more potent. Your opponents more likely to be doing that type of stuff on your turn. Uh, definitely, and it's one mana that cost reduction is a pretty big deal. Definitely some options there for sure. Because like. The thing, the whole thing about exiling cards and being able to cast them is that how much mana do you have in play? How much of it did you use on the alt casting cost? And how much does that leave you to deal with the stuff that you pull? 
well, this is only going to cost one, assuming that they've already taken damage. So that means two total. You bolted them. At, at maybe a rift bolt came off, suspend, you hit them, and then you're spending one of your mana to spectacle, flipping two cards, and you might have one or two extra lands to cast both, and maybe it's a vexing devil in a, another bolt or something. That seems yeah. least worth looking at, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably going to get tested, especially because they're shocking themselves and stuff too, right? Fetching and shocking. Um, plenty of opportunities for that type of thing. All right, that wraps up most of our main segments. We're going to switch over to talking to Kyle Montgomery. Just give us a second. All right, James and I are now joined by Kyle Montgomery. Uh, you may know Kyle from his recent opening of the Alpha Starters on Twitch. Um, Kyle, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so Kyle, you, you first came to my attention now as, as perusing the high-end Facebook groups and came across this incredible plan that was unfolding before my eyes um, where someone who, frankly, I had never heard of before um, was offering up $500 slots um, to pop open an alpha star, sealed alpha starter deck and then essentially raffle off the results. Um, we're fascinated by this because we have talked about in the past the uh, likely advent of raffles in the Magic community coming on the heels of a lot of the raffling auctions we've seen in the comics world. And I'm fascinated to hear about you, your background in Magic the Gathering, and how you came uh, to the point where you were suddenly about to be opening an alpha starter deck on stream. All right. Well, that was a, that's a lot to work with, but uh, let's see. <laughs> Uh, I played Magic since I think fifth edition, so I was like maybe nine years, eight or nine years old, and I've played Magic ever since. Magic's always been a pretty big part of my life, my main hobby. And uh, from Magic, I got into playing poker, and that's my profession. I'm a professional poker player, which is not exactly unheard of in the Magic world or anything. And and, and, and not not exactly foreign to the concept of gambling then. No, pretty, pretty big fan of gambling. I don't do too much like casino gambling anymore, but uh, I I certainly enjoy gambling and magic. I've always been a very big fan of doing pack wars. We did a lot of pack wars recently with some older sets. So that's always a lot of fun. Uh, We'll do just to do a quick legends pack wars, you know, nothing. Nothing yeah, we did a lot of legends pack wars at Gen Con this year. I was lucky enough to win a tabernacle. Which created uh, quad nine five, so that was pretty lucky. Wow, jeez! So I about broke yeah. even on all those packs. <laughs> so bring us up to speed on how you ended. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming you've been active in the high end community for years, having played Magic for a long time, and probably having a fairly sizable collection of your own. How did you maneuver into position where you decided you were going to acquire and raffle off some alpha starters? Well. We were at uh, Eternal Weekend this year, and I was trying to get some pack wars going, but there wasn't any uh, there wasn't any fresh boxes to to war with, and I don't really like using uh, packs that are just loose because they're often searched, and I'm not really interested in paying like dealer asking prices to do a pack war. So we were talking about pack warring uh, alpha or beta starters, but it was just like too much money. No one's gonna want to like do a heads up. $15,000 or $30,000 coin flip, basically. So we kind of... Jim Brusso from Graded Power had mentioned that he had done these raffles back in the day. 
you're you're a professional poker player and you're telling me nobody's betting 30 grand on a coin flip. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> well, well there, there, are, there, are, there are some people. Yeah, there are some people who will happily flip for fifteen or thirty thousand dollars in the poker world, but not as much in the magic world. Yeah. Most people, especially with in the high end community, are pretty frugal, always looking for a deal, you know, trying to make their profit. It's it's a not culture really. around EV after all. Yeah, definitely. So Jim had told me how he had used they used to do like a like twenty dollars a card or a hundred dollars a card or whatever on starter decks and then they would uh, pull the names out of a hat or whatever and draft the cards. So whoever was pulled out first would get first pick. And we were trying to organize that at eternal weekend, but it just fell through. We couldn't get the price right with Jim and we didn't have enough time to collect all the money and stuff. So I just kind of decided that I was going to run one and I already had some beta starters and alpha starters in my collection. So I just put it up on Facebook and there was quite a bit of interest and it didn't take very long to fill. So we did the first beta starter and then a week or so, a couple of weeks later, there was so much interest in the beta one that I decided to do an alpha one. Um, I, I came in late to the process then because I didn't, wasn't even aware of the beta opening. What, what was the outcome of the beta? Um, the outcome of the beta was, um, well, we opened the, the beta and I noticed about halfway through the uncommons that, uh, you know, there's a slight hole missing on the corners where the rares should be. So we knew there was going to be alpha rares because the alpha corners are uh, more rounded. So you could actually see in the pile where the missing card is. So that was pretty dramatic that there was going to be alpha rares. But in the end, it was just, uh, what was it? Pirate ship and volcanic eruption and nothing particularly exciting. <laughs> So, so that is dramatic and fascinating. I was not even aware that that could happen. I mean, the, the lore around alpha and beta starters, given how low that distribution was and how I started playing in 94, September of 94, but that was already too late to be able to get access to that product, which people that weren't around at that time may, may not realize sold out almost instantly. It was gone off shelves. Yeah, when, yeah when I started playing in fifth edition or so, I, I never even seen or heard of alpha, beta, unlimited like fourth edition and revised was like what the beginning of magic was to me. I didn't even know those existed because I was like 10. I wasn't on the internet or anything like, yeah, like I didn't, was, I didn't know these sets existed. The, magic's birthday is basically the same year as like the first browsers became popular. And so the internet was not quite where it is today. And yeah, I mean, I was around for 24 of the 25 years of magic and I was completely unaware of what you just, of the fact you just mentioned, which is that, some beta starters can contain alpha rares. Yeah, so my understanding from what everyone has told me is they had a lot of extra alpha rares at the end of the printing process for alpha. They, However, the distribution they did it was with the packs and the starters and only putting two rares in the starter decks instead of three, which they changed later on. They just had a bunch of alpha rares sitting around. So they hand-packed those into beta starter decks just because they had nothing else to do with them. Sure. Wow. Sure. And then there's also the so Beta the time, God pack. Okay, we'll get to that in a second, but I want to comment on the fact that it's amusing that people probably would have been pissed to open one of those starters at the time because sleeves didn't even really exist yet. So that meant that those cards would be fully were marked. people even that. aware of the concept of, like, I mean, obviously you would know what a marked card was, but, like, did people care at that time? 
Your brother. Uh, I mean, once the, turn, once the tournament once the tournament started, like the Pro Tour in '96 or whatever, you weren't allowed to play with Alpha cards unless your right. entire deck was Alpha. So yeah, it would have probably That's, been disappointing at that time to get Alpha rares. And for years, even when Vintage turned like took off, there there were a lot of people that were much less interested in Alpha than Beta. I mean, we've seen that flip as time has has gone on, but there was definitely a point where people would be much more interested in a card that was playable out of sleeve than they would have been out of, mm-hmm. in an alpha card. Yeah, I would say alpha was close to equal or slightly, yeah, about equal for quite a while. Dealers were certainly much more interested in buying beta cards because they were much easier to sell. So now tell me about the beta god pack. The beta god pack, if you watch, I'm sure you guys probably have watched the Open Boosters channel on YouTube, which is sure. one of my yep. favorite channels. One of the beta starter decks that he opened was a god pack. And in the god packs, uh, all the uncommon slots are also rares. So you get 15 <laughs> rares. So he opened one and it had like, I can't remember exactly. I think it had it had a piece of power and a dual land and like 13 other rares or whatever. <laughs> That's a nice one. And then Jim Bruso has told me that there are alpha decks that the common slots are all uncommons and then the uncommons and rares are all rares. That's what he told me. Wow. I've never seen one opened on YouTube or a video of it, but he claims there's alpha God packs as well. And then I would take his word on it. So, Wow. That's, that's definitely a fact I would be dangling if I was trying to unload $30,000 product. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, he certainly is in the business of selling them. I'm my father is in the in the market for these kinds of things at, at the moment. He's I'm much more of a collector than a speculator, and I'll certainly be dangling that fact myself, trying to convince you him to finally see it happen. Yeah, but he'll never. But but if he's a collector, he'll never open the pack. Well, that's great. So he'll it's, never uh, know. Yeah. He's he's also a de- degenerate gambler, so there's entirely possible starter. he'll wreck himself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. Yeah. so so was the Alpha Starter the first one you opened uh, from your own collection? Yeah, it was from my personal collection, yeah. I had bought so it about a year that? ago. Got it. And so what, in, in the end, what was the problem that developed as you were opening that? You Was it that you had one extra rare but one card missing or something? There were a lot of things fishy about that pack. There was one common missing, so there was only 44 commons. Got it. And then... And then there were also three rares instead of two. So we had 59 cards and an extra rare and a missing common. And I guess a missing uncommon as well Now to come up with 59 cards. So it was wrong all around. Right. And you were opening that live on stream. So everybody that was participating was experiencing it as you were experiencing it. Right. (laughs) Was your heart, heart starting to speed up as you realized it might be going awry? I was certainly, I wasn't too worried, to be honest, during the stream because the quality control was really poor back then. And I know that having 59 cards or extra cards is not like a super red flag or anything because you do get these packs just that have extra rares or 15 rares or alpha rares and beta packs. So I wasn't instantly worried. But once I turned the stream off and I started examining the packaging and everything like that, there was certainly some huge red oh, flags really? there. And then once you combine it, 
with the wrong paths and everything. It was pretty obvious. So you think it was repacked? I can't say 100%, but I mean, people were confident enough that the person who sold it to me believed it to be and got another one. You know, it's really impossible to say 100%, but most likely it was tampered with at some point. Right. And you don't want to hang your reputation on it. So, of course, you're going to resolve the matter. Right. I mean, most likely it was it was tampered with a very long time ago. I would guess in the like mid 90s. Certainly before the year 2000, probably. Just <laughs> because like, I'm going to amp this up by 50 bucks. Just because of all the, the commons and uncommons were completely untouched. And the someone told me that they mapped the uncommon sheet and, and the common sheet based on the cards and the cards missing were uh, uh, Lightning uh, Bolt uh, and Sarah uh, Angel. Which is... And then the, one of the rares was Lord of the Pit and Lord of the Pit does go next to Black Lotus. So there's a lot of like conspiracy theory that it could have like the extra rares that were packed in could have been next to a lotus yeah so like sarah angel bolt and potentially a lotus could have been missing but who knows right and then they repack it for extra value so what did that like a a store owner probably most likely just goes through and pulls out all the money cards and then just repacks them it's it's uh i'm you know i i suppose it makes sense when you put all the dots together but when i had heard that that had happened. My first thought was like, well, this is 1993 that they can't keep the product in store. Like, you know, it's probably Richard Garfield putting these things in boxes himself. I'm just like the quality control must be atrocious. Uh, I mean, you're telling us about them putting alpha rares in the beta starters by hand, which kind of proves that point. Um, That's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So what does that what did that end up meaning for you, Kyle? Like, did you have to eat that, or did you manage to work something out with the person you got it from? I basically worked it out with the person that sold it to me. Gotcha. So we okay. worked it out. We worked out an agreement, and uh, we got a new starter to do the raffle again, basically replacing the cards from the first attempt. And did the primary source replace the starter, or they just connected you with somebody that could replace it? Uh, they basically connected me with, uh, Jim Bruso and Bruso sold me a a starter. Yeah. Right. And so was this, was this all being done at cost? Like were you, was the cost of the starter equivalent to the subscriptions or were you making a little extra on it? I didn't really make anything on it. No. I mean, honestly, I probably did it under market rate. I was trying to buy some and the cheapest one actually was Jim's at 32. A lot of people wanted like. 35 36 some people just a lot of people who own them just refuse to sell at any price which is right understandable and 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 the more of these get that get opened on twitch the more that makes sense (laughs) yeah there's not very many of them I, i don't know how many of them are out there there's definitely still some people out there who have you know probably 50 or 100 of them but you're 100 alpha starters but the vast majority of people who have them, you know, just have a handful. They might just have one or. But, you know, there's the people, the former Wizards founders and stuff that still have quite a bit in their collections. And there's certainly sure. other private people out there that, you know, no one even knows about who's just had the stuff forever. I, I met a guy in, that owned a comic shop in Cleveland this summer that I'd never heard of that has a massive collection that none of which has ever made it onto the market and he's like a lurker 
on most of the groups. Does yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of people like that. I've heard of multiple, you know, multi-million dollar collections of people that don't really, they certainly don't get out and brag or show anybody or whatever, but they have it. Because once, once you're at that level, there's really, it's all downside to having too much publicity. So, Right. And then there's also these people who are winning these auctions on PWCC and, you know, paying 80K for a Lotus and stuff like but most of those things are just getting locked down forever. Like they're never going to come back onto the market. Right. Do you, do you have a sense? How many total sealed alpha starters do you think are left in the world? If you had to guess a number. Oh, I don't know. It would just be, I would just be making up a number. Like I would, I would assume it's at least in the thousands. You think thousands? Prob- yeah, I would, I would, I would take over a thousand. But would you take over 5,000? Probably not. I, I guess I don't know. It's so hard to know. It's really impossible it's kind to of tell. Amazing to me that you think there's that many. I think I there, would never have guessed that. I think there's. I think there was like. I can't remember exactly what, but I want to say there was like twenty or thirty thousand printed. Somewhere in that range. So it wouldn't. I think it's only like five percent still being alive. Isn't that hard to believe? So, for Alpha, the numbers that have been on the table for ages and ages is 1,100 of each rare. Right. So, if they only printed 1,100 of each rare and you get two in each pack, putting aside the god packs and so forth, um, the, then you only need 500 decks total to get to the 1,100. Well, and no, that, just, that, that would only be for one rare, though, but there's like 116 rares. Rare. Right, right, right. So, and that disregards the boosters as well. So you have the combination of boosters and starter decks, and that was the only two products that existed at that point. Right. Like Crystal Keep, which is normally my go-to source for this stuff, has Alpha at 2.6 million cards at 50% starter and 50% booster. So you got 1.3 million cards divided by 60, so that's like 20-some thousand. So if like 1,000 are left, that's about 5%. It could be lower than that. I would probably take over a thousand though. I definitely think there's people out there who have like a hundred and it doesn't take just a a bunch of cases of starter decks. They've been sitting on forever. Yeah. I think there's some in the, I'm sure there's some in the corporate vault as well. Yeah. There's, there's definitely, I'm sure wizards own some. I know they've been like trying to buy some of that stuff up in the past decade, trying to kind of add to their reserves. Sure. And we kind of it makes saw perfect them. sense if you have all the data. Yeah, and we kind of saw them give away, you know, like they had all these beta boosters and they've given away these alpha starter decks and unlimited starter decks and stuff at these recent 25th anniversary tournaments. And I'm sure they're hoping yeah. to have, you know, 30th anniversaries and 50th anniversaries and so on and so forth. So I'm sure they still have lots of product. Yeah. I mean, if I had to guess, I would say less than, I would pick a number between 1,000 and 2,000 and feel relatively confident that that was about right you know i was really annoyed seeing how much of that wizards was churning through uh during that kind of 25th celebration when they're throwing beta packs to the crowd and cracking multiple beta starter or beta starter packs uh in the span of a couple weeks but i mean if you're saying that you think there's over a thousand alpha starters still out in the wild that's that's a good chunk that's a lot more i think that i would have guessed i would have figured there was couple hundred yeah i think a lot of people 
like overestimate or underestimate the population? Because there's a lot of people that you talk to that you just, they'll be like, yeah, I still have a, like a beta brick of 10 starters or whatever. And there's definitely people who just have a bunch of those. Yeah, I talk to those people all the time. <laughs> it's just not, I don't think it's as rare as people think. They're certainly rare. I mean, and they're becoming more rare every day because people are opening them. I mean, open boosters, I don't know how many he's opened. Probably like, he's probably well, opened this, 50 and this, of them. And this is the thing. If what you just did becomes popular, um, as it is very popular in the comics world, for instance, they it wouldn't take that long for the community to churn through a pretty significant chunk of at least the privately held inventory. If you put aside the like the big fish collectors who have no intention of selling because they don't need the money, the wizards employees who are maybe playing a very long game and the corporate inventory that we have no access to, then, you know, say you think there's 1400 sealed decks, you end up with quite a few less in terms of accessible to the general population. And, you know, it, it, it puts me of a mind to cash out some stocks at the height of the market and push it into a, into a starter deck and sit on it for a while. Yeah, I, I I don't know how I feel about investing in them, especially after cracking one that I had no reason to believe whatsoever had anything wrong with it, and there was something wrong with it. I don't want to like sure. scare anybody out of buying one, but I think it's a very difficult task to buy one, sit on it for three years, and then find of someone who wants to buy it from you and trust your story and trust you as a source. Especially if you're not yeah, like a it, very prominent figure no, who's been around no. magic forever. Like I eventually noting that like Go twenty ahead. years from now or whatever, if you still have an alpha starter and it's changed hands like fifteen times, like it's really, really difficult to know whether that thing is real or not. Right. The pro the provenance is just pretty tough to track. It's it's not like you have a series of certificates from auction houses or antique shops or anything that will track the provenance of that object. So yeah, it's really I, just I think I, I think they might grade them. I think one of the grading services, I could see them doing some sort of authentication. I could see some, I could also see a time where they open them like at somehow like a, at an impartial secret judge opens it verifies the inner packaging and everything about it's legit. They like close it back up, put some sort of stamp on it and seal it up. And then it's like a verified real starter. And then it's much easier once it's inside that graded case or whatever to have for a long time and be verified. Cause the, the risk of uncertainty of it being a, you know, an EV of 4,000 instead of, minimum 15 or 20,000 is a massive difference. And that risk premium really impacts your ability to resell, as you said. For sure, especially in the future, if, if they become increasingly rare and you know you're talking six figures and you're talking like an auction house, a big auction house, no one's going to want to bid on it unless they're for sure that it's real. So we'll, yeah, this we'll is see how it really goes. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. I just, it becomes exceedingly difficult to trust your source as time goes on because you know eventually like the people who've been around magic forever who are the big dealers or whatever you know they can pass away they can stop being involved with the community and it becomes extremely difficult to know where it came from 
Right. This is all very fascinating. One, because I never would have guessed that there were that many alpha starters to begin with. And two, I've never really pondered it, but it didn't occur to me that like having them for investment is actually uh, sort of a risky proposition simply because it would be so hard years down the road for somebody to trust you. Right. The Um, hardest part is reselling it. Yes. Yeah. See, in my mind, when I bought my starters, I was always going to open them at some point. Like I knew I was never going to really sell them, so it didn't bother me so much. But I do think, I think it's it's going to become more difficult, especially if more fakes get opened. What? How, when did you start buying starters, and how many do you own now? Uh, I, I'm not going to say how many I own, but I've started buying them probably three or four years ago. Okay, and so it's a significant amount. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, moving along, uh, during the second alpha opening stream, um, the, uh, redo as it were, um, can you give us, uh, some highlights in terms of what was open last week? Um, let's see. The commons went quite well. We did not open lightning bolt, which is the, the one card you really want to open because especially the commons tend to be the best condition. Because there's just 45 of them in the middle, and the rule book doesn't touch them, and often the ones that are in the center are very good condition. And a lightning bolt these days is like two thousand dollars or more in a nine five. So you really want to open lightning bolt, which we didn't, but we opened almost all the other good ones, like Lana War Elves and Dark Ritual and Fireball and Disenchant, and I don't remember what else. I'd have to go look at the list, but we did pretty well on the commons despite missing. We had giant growth as well, despite missing the big one. In the uncommon slot, the big hit was Demonic Tutor. And then there might have been another good uncommon. I don't remember. And then the rares... Was it Animate Dead? Yeah, there was an Animate Dead. Yeah, Animate Dead is pretty nice these days, too. That card's getting very expensive. And then the first rare that we flipped over was Mana Barbs which was kind of funny because the first one also had a mana barbs. <laughs> but the way but the way mana barbs is on the rare sheet, it's on the very top row and then directly below it's ancestral recall. So at that point there's a pretty high chance that the rare is going to be ancestral recall, probably like 40% or something because it's usually sure. above or below. I'm not exactly sure how it works when it's on the edge. But I imagine that they just go across the top row and do the top two pretty often. So were you getting? So at that point, it was. I was pretty excited that at that point. I mean, to have at least you know, at that point, if you're like forty percent ancestral, plus you have the odds still on all the other cards, you're probably at like fifty percent power at that point. So and then we and then I flipped it over and it was time walk so. Take wasn't ancestral but can't right. complain. Yeah. And, and you i gotta say you had one of the most restrained reactions to opening an alpha time walk that i think the internet's ever seen yeah i don't it takes a lot to get me really excited i remember uh, also there had been so much drama that week that like and it kind of takes a just, long time to go through 60 cards so i'd already done one that week yeah and i don't and i don't know at that point i guess i just i'd lost my nerves I didn't care anymore. Burnt out on the whole process. Be. Yeah. Except, what what is the street value? Do you think of a say it grades nine five? What is that time walk worth? 
this this particular time walk will not grade nine five, but if it had been on the inside instead of the outside, and what I mean by that is the plastic wrap, the rares, are, the two rares are on the very outside, but the inner rare tends to have less damage than the outer rare, and the time walk was the outer rare. Sure. I would say anywhere from it's like a, 20 to, I mean, price starts at like 20. And if it's like a quarter better, you're looking at like 30, 40,000. Right. And so you, what do you think this one's going to grade? I think this one will probably grade an eight or an eight and a half probably. Okay. Which marks it as worth what? Probably like eight to 10,000. I would guess. Sure. So what, what is your best guess at, have you run the numbers or come up with a rough estimate of whether the group of people that bought slots for this got their money back collectively on this one? I think this one probably broke even to a little bit up. Probably like, I would ballpark it in the like 25 to 35 range. Right. Depending on how it all, all the grades come back. Yeah, it depends upon how the grades come back. And obviously a, a lot of... People have been complaining about the grades lately, so it makes it more difficult. But you can always just wait it out, wait to grade or regrade your cards. Right. Okay. But even the first um, starter, so just to- the repack starter, I still think is probably worth like 10 to 15. Sure. Which is pretty surprising. You wouldn't expect like a, a tampered with pack to have so much value. Which is why I believe part of, part, it was probably done a very long time ago. Yeah, that fits the narrative Makes sense. there. All right, so the let's just clarify for people that may not have followed along um, or be aware of how this works, how the whole assignment of slots goes. People buy a slot, and they were five hundred bucks a piece, I believe. Right. So the funding was thirty thousand for the whole thing. Right. And and then you write the numbers on sleeves and shuffle the sleeves. As you're opening the pack, you're putting them into the sleeves just in whatever random order the shuffle resulted in. Right. And then you make a final uh, uh, assignment of a given person's name to a numbered sleeve based on the Powerball lottery or something? Yeah, we put everybody's name in a list and I just shuffled it. I shuffled it with the Excel function a few times based on... I rolled a die and however many times the die came up, I, I shuffled the names it's really not necessary to do so much randomization, but I feel like the more randomization you do, the less likely someone who doesn't understand probability can complain. Did you uh, did you get sure. any complaints from people about how it was handled and the numbers and all that? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't. No one seemed upset with how that went down. I mean, I was pretty worried that people were going to be pretty upset about me announcing that. I thought the pack was wrong and we were going to redo it but seemed like everyone was just really happy to get to do it again like i didn't have one complaint whatsoever everyone was really, really? happy i was kind of wondering about that to just get to do it again did did they know what their what they had won by the point where you had announced that or was that had the, had you stalled the process until you resolved to your satisfaction well the way I, we did it the you wouldn't know until like 24 hours after it was open what you won. So I was able to announce that we were doing it again before anyone knew what they would have won. Plus there right. were so Which few, obviously there were so few cards that anybody could have like profited that I don't think anyone cared. 
there was probably only like right. four or five cards that people would have been happy okay, so winning. I, I'm sorry. I want to. What, what is you, it? I, I I guess I'm I'm slightly confused then because it sounded like you went you did all the randomization, but I thought the point of doing that on stream was so that people could feel like they were you know validating in their position in line or whatever. But I would expect that to mean that during the stream, as you're putting the card into the sleeve marked 41, that people would know that that was their number. But uh, so how did that work? How did they not know what number they were? So the second stage. So there's names in a list marked 1 through 60. Yeah. And then there's cards marked 1 through 60. And then we use the Powerball. Yeah. Then we use the Powerball to determine which spot on the list gets card number one. And then it just wraps around the list from there. I guess I just would have expected. Next, if I, if I do it again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the Powerball part a little differently because we discovered, we discovered afterwards that there's quite a bit of shenanigans with how I did it. Not that it was unfair in any way, but it kind of killed a lot of the drama. Certain people were a lot more likely to win the time walk than others were. Huh. Like not before the pack was opened, but after the numbers were assigned, some, some numbers were a lot more likely to win based off of the probability and Powerball distribution. Oh. So next time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way that's, doesn't kill the sweat for people. I'll find a way that's more evenly distributed. Some people had almost 0% chance to win the time walk, which kind of kills it for them. That's so odd. And so my, my understanding is that you, you had, you kept some of the slots for yourself, right? Yeah, I kept uh, 15 of the slots for myself. So you had, you had 25% chance of the time walk. Did you get it? I did win the time walk. <laughs> so I was talking to my buddy in the comics world um, as I was prepping for this, so and he was I'll saying, "Probably break wow, even." He, had, <laughs> he he was like he had slots in his own thing. We never do that. Well, that's yeah. The one because the comics one is also winner take all. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they also True. and they also do this like where they just take a video of themselves doing a random number generator. And it's kind of shady. Like it seems like you could, yeah. you could game like, you could game it somehow. I wanted to pick something that's completely out of my control that nobody could possibly accuse me of being able to rig. And I just figure that, you know, the national lottery, Powerball, win two hundred million dollars. Like it's going to be hard to argue. I know how to rig the Powerball. Did Did anybody give you any shit about winning the time walk? Uh, I mean, I mean, I think yep. Yep. I'm sure some people were kind of, I'm sure some people were a little salty about it, but <laughs> I, nobody said anything in regards to me, like somehow cheating. I mean, I went in with 25% of the slots, so I'm obviously the most likely person to win it. Hey, hey you guys want to, you guys want to give me some of your money and discount my time walk? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but when you look at the end of the day, like I bought 15 slots for 500, like, that's 7,500. Yep. Like I will probably make a little bit as long as it does great an eight or an eight and a half, but it's not like I, I didn't win the lottery or anything like. Yeah. And, and, and given how many basic lands are in those packs, which are still reasonably valuable cards, especially if they're graded um, in their islands. Uh, but you could have just as easily ended up with a large percentage of the lands. Yeah. Like if I had won like eight basic lands and seven un like popular commons, I don't think anybody would have been telling me how sorry they felt for me. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, so what, what was the best card that someone that wasn't Kyle won? 
Uh, probably, well, uh, the other rare, the Mana Barbs was really good looking. So um, Jerry Thompson actually won the Mana Barbs. Oh, well. And uh, I've Fresh, known... Freshly minted Magic Pro, Gary Thompson. Uh, yeah, Jerry. I've known Jerry for a long time. We were actually... We lived together briefly a long time ago in Indiana. So Jerry was happy to join in. You know, he likes he likes a little gamble from I, time know, to time. Suppose, yeah, right. I mean, why not? I suppose that if... <laughs> His last one paid off. Uh, the gamble where he... Well... Where he uh, sat out the world championships to demand a change from Wizards, and then they changed the entire program underneath them. Well, Which yeah, that was, was a be careful what you wish for. But he still, he still, he gave up a lot of money doing that. I thought he was pretty yeah, crazy doing that. Uh, so he did. I would have I, never done. I, I was proud of him. I was kind of proud of him, but I also, I felt like he should, he needed to get some other people in on it. Doing it as a one man out of twenty four just isn't a big enough impact. I felt like. But maybe he just he couldn't do it, or maybe people told him they would, and then they backed out. I don't really know. I never, I haven't had a deep conversation with him about it yeah. at all. Right. Yeah, that's a whole a whole other episode. Yeah, I, I for was, sure. Uh, and I, the so, whole thing. Someone else won the anime dead, and I'm sure some of the other uncommons. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I mailed all the cards out like the very next day, so I was packing up like forty some boxes. So. Kind of gets all lost. <laughs> the, uh, what, what about the fireball and the dark ritual? I think I won the dark ritual, but it's it's not going to be worth a ton or anything. It's very off-center, and it has a huge print dot on the front of it. I, I suppose that if you if you did, and I'm not saying you did, you did. I'm just, it's like a hypothetical. Were someone to do what you did and rig it so that they got the time walk, you bought in for 15 slots, which is already such a major investment. And time walk, it's not like it's worth 70 grand. So even if you did go through all of this just to rig it, winning a time walk, if it grades nine fives, you're still making like, if you're lucky, a couple grand. Like it's just so much work and so well, much if it, Well, if it grades nine five, you make a lot. No, no, you make a lot because twenty five percent of it was seventy twenty five percent of thirty thousand seventy five hundred. So if it graded at thirty thousand to forty thousand, yeah, you'd okay, be so it. you make twenty thousand. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, Plenty. you'd have you have to rig it first. You have to open a good rare. Like, you can just open mana barbs and a bad rare, and now you've paid seventy five hundred for like whatever three grand or something. So, right. like, I I don't think. Even if you guarantee that you win the rares every time, it's probably not. You should just buy two slots and, <laughs> and rig it to yeah. win the rares. Because if you buy that many slots, like it's hard to get your yeah, money. Yeah, buying there. more slots it doesn't help you. It's buying one slot and then getting the yeah. time walk that looks best. the uh, The other thing is that the best scam is the one that you think already got run, which is pull the lotus and then repack yeah. the pack and get away with it. Yeah, and like the thing is. It could have so easily been a store owner who did it and some guy bought it for like $20 in 1997 or whatever, or 50 bucks or something. And then it's just changed hands three more times. And there was no reason, like there was no reason from the outside to suspect anything was wrong with it. Yeah. So, And the deal is, part of the deal there that people might not understand is that the cellophane wrapping around it is not some kind of custom, unusual thing. Like it can be done by a commonly found machine, right? I'm not an expert in uh, packing or wrapping or anything, but it certainly doesn't seem unique. It doesn't have any, it doesn't have like a Watsy or Wizards or Magic the Gathering 
like emblem on it or anything like you know booster boxes do. It's just it doesn't clear have a foil ribbon in it that is like specific to wizards, etc. Yeah, it doesn't have like the gold ribbon pull tab like uh, some of the unlimited, and then the later on starter decks have. Well, especially because we're there's nothing super. We, unique you know, we're talking about, about 1993, 1994. Right. So like, I don't think that technology. I don't was counterfeiting in any space of that nature rampant enough at the time to warrant those types of tamper proof uh, packaging. Like, I guess I wouldn't expect that anywhere, not just within magic, but like just anywhere. Certainly not. I mean, there would have been no, especially not with alpha. I mean, alpha, when it came out, it was literally like a demo still. Like yeah. this was this was a game they were trying to get off the ground. These were their demonstration packs. These are what they gave out at Gen Con for free to people who just here come learn my game. You know, like they have a hundred booths at Gen Con every year of people saying here come here learn my game. Like that's what Magic was. That's like they certainly weren't worried about counterfeiting. They probably would have been like, "Well, oh, this is great. Like maybe more people will know about our game." <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So. All right. So. So at the end result of this, you got a time walk. That's pretty sweet. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the What's next, though? Are you interested in doing more of this, or do you think you've had enough? Um, I don't know. I might. I have some more that I might open, so we'll see. I'm on a, like a two-month trip right now, so it won't be anytime soon. But I've definitely had people messaging me asking me like when it's going to happen and i'm like it already happened man like two weeks ago and they're like oh well if you do it again i'm in so there's definitely more interest out there and i think there's there's also some people with starters who've messaged me and who are kind of willing to sell them if they can get that kind of price so i think the supply is certainly there if people want to do it I, but we'll see. I mean, I had fun doing it. I could see it losing its glimmer. Yeah. It is a lot of work and a lot of headache. You're dealing with like upwards of like 40 different people and sending 40 different packages and receiving all these payments. And like, I don't know, it could become an issue with PayPal. I could imagine in the future, like if you were doing it all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, if you're, so I won't. <clears throat> I, you know, I'm not going to put you on it, but uh, if you're accepting those as family and friends, uh, they're going to notice if it's $40,000 worth of family and friend payments. Uh, yeah, especially if you're doing it like every yeah, month. Right. Like, And I suppose like anything else like it's that, it's be- really cool and exciting and worth it the first time. But when it starts to turn into like just a thing you do and kind of a job, you know, even if you're making money, it's like, all right, this is kind of annoying to have to do, go through this. Uh, I, I can respect why you'd want to do all that. Yeah, I mean, so, Open Booster seems to have a really good time every time he does it. But he's also that, just... That guy's relentlessly positive. Yeah, but he's also just keeping all the cards for himself, and he basically got them all for free. So I would be really happy in his well, shoes, yeah, too. Yeah, and also, he probably... It, he almost might make more money on the YouTube views than he does on the product, frankly, like it depending on the reach of those videos. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea how much people make from YouTube. I do know that there's people out there who make millions from it, but I don't know what kind of subscriber count you have to have. To no, he, he's not at that level. His, his average views is somewhere between like five and 10 K. So like he's got a little trickle, but wrong. definitely the cards are, how did he get him for free? The, I don't really know him or know the story very well at all. I don't know the story for sure either, but for some reason in my head, I either remember it from one of his early videos or someone told me that, 
like he had them, had, had purchased them and had believed them to be lost a very long time ago. And I'm sure someone can correct me. I could just be like misremembering a story about someone else or something. But I believe he just like found them in his closet one day or found them at his parents' house or something. Just like a giant box of old sealed product. And, you know, if you had had that sealed product over the years and, you know, whatever, you paid a few hundred dollars for it. You know, when it's worth $10,000, you are going to sell some of it. And when it's worth $50,000, you are going to sell some of it. But if you just think it's gone and you never know you even own it, and it can get to a million or whatever that way without you ever selling a piece of it. Yeah, that's like the people who bought Bitcoin at 30 cents. All right, I'm... <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. Like, how many people who bought Bitcoin at thirty cents didn't sell at three dollars and thirty dollars and three hundred dollars? Yeah. I mean, Oddly enough, one of the major magic vendors in Toronto didn't sell and just bought a, a house or something. So yeah, I mean, that's a whole other topic. But, I yeah, guess. most I mean, people didn't. But you're right. Most people didn't. Uh, it does sound like we need to have open boosters on to get the full story, though. So maybe we'll line that up. Yeah, I mean, I think fill in the gaps. I think you. he'd be interested. Maybe I don't know. Or he might have a video where he already does it on his. He has so many chan- so many episodes. I I don't know. But I feel like I remember some story along those lines. Hmm. Like I don't think he just decided one day that he was going to spend like a million dollars cracking packs on YouTube for the fun of it. Like maybe he did, but I don't think that's how it happened. I, I was in a, I'm now you've got my attention because my understanding was just that he was opening other people's packs or something. No, I'm pretty sure all had- those are his cards. Cause I know he's like collecting a really nice 9.5 beta set and he, and he grades all his cards and he keeps the best ones and sells the other ones. So, I figured they were all his. It's just, he was obscenely wealthy from something else and had decided this is how he wanted to spend some of that money oh that could totally be true too i I have no reason to believe that like that's just what i would have guessed (laughs) we may as well cut our speculation short and i'll have the guy on and we'll find out (laughs) 70 versions of this that we decided in our head (laughs) that we invented on our own yeah you know if i made a hundred million dollars and like i don't know somehow i was an angel investor and youtube or whatever or something like that i could see myself spending a million dollars cracking magic packs too for fun so i certainly sure. can't blame you, gotta, you gotta fill your time when you got nothing to do but yeah. count your money well it's also the probably the best All way right. to get a nice set i think it's really really hard to find raw cards these days that'll grade at nine five i think you have to open up the packs well if you want that right. volume yeah it doesn't seem terrible yeah i mean he looks like he started four years ago all right. Um, we will follow up on that. Kyle, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been fascinating having you walk us through the process of opening alpha starter decks on Twitch. Um, we will make sure that in our show notes and in our Discord channel for our pro traders at MTG Price this week that we've got all your information so they can follow up with you in case people want to compete with me and my father for your next set of $500 slots. <laughs> and we'll message, you, we'll message you off cast about the complimentary slot James and I get for having you on the cast. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's a sweet deal. Sponsored. <laughs> yeah. I know we didn't talk about this, but like we're going <laughs> to... Hashtag sponsor. Right, well, thank you again for joining us, Kyle. And where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, James, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price doing the Watchtower series. Uh, how about yourself? 
You guys can find me on Twitter at MTGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that are almost built and will drive better returns <laughs> and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, I had a great time tonight. Thanks again to Kyle Montgomery for joining us. That was very informative and fun to listen to. Uh, I, I had a good time. And James, I will see you next week on episode 149. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Kyle. And we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Vice Finance. Mm-hmm.